This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, a 10-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap, worthless strumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you. A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire. She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive. I'm your host, Arlie Proctor, here with my cohorts, Hazel Matthews and Skylar DeWolf. In our last episode, we discovered that Meeks Devlin was miraculously alive. That's right, she was not killed in a car crash in the Nevada desert on New Year's Day, 1969. She's alive, 90 years old, and working as an artist in Las Vegas. Now, we've thrown out our plans for these last episodes because we've got the woman herself to tell her story. And today's story is about the loves of Mink Stevlin, specifically John F. Kennedy and Elvis Presley. Ladies and gentlemen, Clara Minx Devlin. Yes, that would be in Herb Zussman's Love Nest, as JFK was, uh, I guess you'd say, frolicking with a hooker. No, t- twin hookers. There were two of them. Oh, uh, uh, yes, that's right. And then, of course, the gunplay and uh, your uh, trial for attempted murder, where Kennedy promised you he'd get you off if you kept his name out. And I did, and he did. And he gives me this ridiculous Cadillac convertible to show his gratitude. And one day... I get a phone call, it's Jack, he's in New York. Our mutual friend Frank Sinatra is headlining at the Latin Quarter. Would I like to fly out there and join him with supper at the Stork Club afterwards? Well, sure. He tells me to check my mailbox. There's my first class airline ticket. In the lost world of 1960, a very sexy, extremely married, young presidential candidate could be seen at a racy New York nightclub with a notorious movie goddess. Yeah, officially, of course, I'm Sinatra's date. We sit at Frank's table, guzzling buckets of champagne, then the real fun starts in our hotel suite. And by real fun... I mean sex. Right. (laughs) It's just that, uh, well, a lot of memoirs of his other lovers mention his back ailment and how it limited their lovemaking. Not tonight, baby. (laughs) He's frisky, limber, and unquenchable. Well, he does stop once, so I can shoot him up with some kind of special, quote, vitamin potion, unquote, concocted by a doctor friend. Um, vitamin? Potion? It was speed, baby. Go-go juice. I knew it even then. Now, let me just add some historical context. The doctor friend, I'm guessing, was the infamous Miracle Max Jacobson, who shot up JFK, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis with his personal potion of amphetamines mixed with, uh, well, God knows what. Well, whatever that stuff was, it worked like a rub of Aladdin's lamp because he and I enjoyed ourselves thoroughly till about, I don't know, 3 a.m. Then at 4, the bedside phone rings. We're both shocked. 
Is it his wife? JFK answers. He starts to bawl out the Secret Service and then stops cold. He puts his hand over the receiver and says, You're not going to believe this. And then says into the phone, Welcome to America, Senor Castro. What can I do for you? After a minute, he hands me the phone. He wants to talk to you, he says. I shake my head, but he forces me to take it. Now, I should mention at this time, Castro had just conquered Cuba, and he hadn't yet fully embraced communism, so the free world, well, wasn't quite sure what to make of it. The point of the phone call was so Fidel could make absolutely certain that JFK knew Castro and I had been lovers, and now he wanted to make me a kind of hero of the revolution. When he calls me his lover, I scream, go to hell, and slam down the phone. I'm sure Jack will hate me, or at least cast me aside, but instead, he smiles at me. I can see it now, this small, wry smile. He says, hey, it's almost dawn. Let's grab a carriage and watch the sunrise in Central Park. So there we are, dressed in our hotel robes, knocking back gulfs of Dom Perignon from the bottle. (laughs) Just as the sun starts to burn off the morning mist, I remember this moment so clearly, Jack turns to me and says, do you believe there's such a thing as fate, Clara, of destiny? Because I believe Senor Castro and I were born to do battle with the victor winning the world. It's gonna be a colossal drama like something out of Shakespeare. He laughs at his grandiosity and hands me the champagne. And you, Clara, you, Clara Devlin, he says, holding up his glass for a toast, you, are the secret that turns the plot. Of course, first Jack has to be elected, and I have a little something to do with that as well. Wow, wow, you do. So so, so what you're saying is... That I might have made the difference in getting JFK elected president. Holy cow, <laughs> that's amazing. So let me see if I can... Well, let me see if I can set this up historically. Okay, it's 1960 now. JFK is battling the sitting vice president, Richard Nixon, for the presidency. Now, every poll has them virtually tied on election day, even after Kennedy wins the three televised debates. On election night, it all comes down to the electoral votes of Illinois, where famously, the city of Chicago, run by the Democratic political machine of Richard Daley, delivers a ridiculous number of last-minute votes to swing it to Kennedy. And since then, everyone has asked, Was there a fix? And if so, how did it work? And you can finally provide a definitive answer to these questions? Pretty much. And it all begins and ends with my then-husband, Herb Zussman. Ugh, that guy again. How is it you're still married to that bastard? (laughs) Well, he's done every possible thing to monkey-wrench the divorce. But I finally get my day in court. I'm using Kennedy's lawyer, H. Riley Dunkirk. All I want is my freedom and my share of the profits from They Came in Outer Space, which is still cleaning up in drive-ins. So, Herbie shows up in court, sloppy drunk, wearing a bathrobe, hobbling on a crutch. His first words to me are, Don't worry, they're not going to kill you no matter what. I ask, Who isn't going to kill me? He says, Vito, the goon, Robustelli, a notorious Chicago mobster. I grab his crutch and start beating him with it. 
Turns out he's taken every dollar we made in our joint enterprise, borrowed a couple of hundred thousand more from the Chicago mob, and put it all on Ingmar Johansson to beat Floyd Patterson in a heavyweight title bout. He's babbling all this crap about couldn't lose inside dope, would have split my share habsies. Of course, Patterson KO'd Johansson in the fifth round, and now Robustelli wants his half million. And Herbie, being Herbie, he has a can't-lose plan to raise the money. As usual, the plan is crooked as a dog's hind leg and reveals an astonishing insight into the dark side of the human psyche with a bit of humiliating self-abasement for yours truly thrown in. Would you be referring to the notorious film Destroy All Teenagers? The one and only. Oh, Destroy All Teenagers has a place in the pantheon of singular exploitation icons alongside The Terror of Tiny Town, the all-little-person western, and, of course, Plan 9 from Outer Space, a film so riven with incompetence it has achieved a kind of cultural transcendence. Exactly right. Herbie says... The dirty little secret of Hollywood is that actors are a bunch of needy, overpaid crybabies who would happily do what they do for nothing just in the hope of getting famous. So if they'll do it for nothing, it stands to reason that the most pathetic, self-deluded of these losers will pay us to be in a picture. He'd mocked up an ad for the Hollywood Reporter. It's in the scrapbook. Yes, right here. It says... Your big chance. If you've ever wanted to star in a Hollywood movie, send your photo, a short bio, and your ability to help finance this guaranteed blockbuster to box 899-B, Mail Drop, Union Station. This is not a joke. It is your destiny calling. So so just to be clear now, Herb Zisman solicited actors to pay him to be in Destroy All Teenagers. Exactly. And the one who paid the most got the biggest part, except for mine, of course. The goal was to rip off the delusional losers who took this deal, make the movie as quickly and cheaply as possible, then send the result down the garbage chute of history. We raised $611,591. Herb spent 14577 during the three days it took to finish. It was released to drive-ins in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, where it played on the bottom third of triple bills for about 30 years. And, of course, it found a second life on late-night television, where it thrilled a generation of stoned baby boomers. I used to show it myself as Baroness von Freitenstein on Bloody Murder Theater in the late 60s. So this film made a profit of a little over $597,000 even before it played in theaters. Now, now, what happened to that money? Well, on a crisp afternoon in the middle of October, I hand-deliver $536,000 in an alligator handbag filled with $100 bills to Vito the Goon Robustelli in room 223 of the Blackstone Hotel. Robustelli apologizes for getting me involved and offers to break Herbie's kneecaps if he keeps stalling the divorce. I tell him it's all right. I, I can handle it. What Robustelli does with the money, I'm sure you can guess. Tell me if I'm connecting the dots here. Now, John F. Kennedy won the 1960 election by 118,000 votes out of 68 million cast. Kennedy carried Illinois by 9,400 votes. He carried Chicago, including Cook County, 
by a ridiculously large majority of 456,312 votes. There were 677 Cook County precinct workers in charge of reporting the final vote tallies for this election. Of these 677, 489 purchased new homes, luxury automobiles, and or colored television sets within six months of the Kennedy victory. When he was asked about his razor-thin margin of victory, Kennedy famously said, quote, My father refused to pay for a landslide. All I can say is, your guess is as good as mine. Wow. Did, did your romance with JFK continue even after he became president? Oh, we talked on the phone quite a bit, but I was out of the country for most of 61 and 62, making a movie with Francois Truffaut. He was the great love and the great tragedy of my life. You will tell us that story, I hope? I will, yes, but first, more about JFK. I traveled back from France via steamship on October 22nd, 1962. As I got off the boat, I'm met by a short, swarthy fire plug in a baggy chauffeur's uniform. He hands me a card. It says, Minx, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for me. Make that to me. Yours, Jack. P.S. Get here ASAP. These migraines are killing me. (laughs) (laughs) That fire plug is Guillermo Hernandez Bauza ex-Cuban rebel officer. He's just joined the CIA after breaking with Castro when the bearded one declared his kinship with Karl Marx. He takes me directly to the White House where one of Jack's bright young men ushers me into the president's sanctum. There's Jack looking 10 years older and 20 pounds heavier. He's got a great big smile and he's holding two martini glasses as he leads me onto the balcony. In exactly 86 minutes, he says... I'm going to go on television and tell the American people that the chance of nuclear war with the Russians is 50-50. I'm terrified. So you remember that day pretty well. October 22, 1962, dead center in the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, on October 15th, American U-2 spy planes had photographed nuclear missile launch sites in Cuba 90 miles from the coast of America. Kennedy then met with his Joint Chiefs of Staff, who unanimously urged a full-scale military invasion of Cuba. Kennedy refused, fearing the Russians would retaliate with nuclear weapons to start World War III with one to two hundred million casualties. Now, Kennedy and Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev are eyeball to eyeball, each waiting for the other one to blink. So, after we finish our martinis, Jack guides me into his secret presidential boudoir. He's ardent as ever, but distracted, and his back problems severely limit our lovemaking options. As soon as we finish, he rolls over and gets back to business. He spreads a sheaf of 11 by 13 black and white glossy photos on the bed and just stares at them. These are the U-2 surveillance photos of Cuba. He points out the missile sites and describes their killing power, enough to wipe out the eastern half of the United States. I stare at the photos, and I notice something. Funny, I say. Jack says, what's funny? Jack's brother Bobby walks in. I'm naked except for a plush White House terry cloth robe, but neither brother seems to notice. I say, those pictures, the missiles, they're right out in the open. 
If you were trying to put one over on the United States, I don't know, wouldn't you hide them? Camouflage something? Jack and Bobby look at each other, and the light bulb goes on over each head at the same moment. Bobby says, They know goddamn well we're running spy planes. And Jack says, Look at that. No camo, no surface-to-air missiles. It's like they, I don't know, want us to see them. Why? And then he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Every single scenario we've run with the Joint Chiefs is based on the idea that Castro is a flunky of the Russians. He turns to me and says, you know Castro, what's he like? I snort. Castro is Napoleon, Caesar, Alexander the Great, and Jose Marti rolled into one. I'm sure he treats the Russians like he treats everyone, like dirt. Bobby says, so what if Khrushchev and Castro aren't in this together? What if Khrushchev is playing a double game? What if he wants to take the U.S. and Castro out at the same time? Jack turns to me with a huge grin. Oh, my God, Clara, you wonderful girl. Do you know what you've done? You have saved the world from nuclear annihilation. He grabs me and kisses me, sending shivers of divine ecstasy through my body. Look, he says, shoving the pictures at me. The Russians give Castro missiles, but leave them out in the open so we'll see them. Why? So... I don't know. So you'll have to invade Cuba? Right, says Jack. I was just about to go on television and tell the world we're sending 200,000 troops to Cuba. Say we do that. We lose 15,000 men, but we get the missiles and grab Castro. Then Khrushchev goes on TV and tells the world what fools we are. It was all for nothing. The missiles are phonies. Phonies, I say, stunned. Phonies, cardboard, for all I know. Then I'll be impeached for losing 15,000 men for nothing. And, and Castro's gone, so Khrushchev can replace him with a sock puppet. Khrushchev gets a shot at Cuba without that pesky egomaniac. He turns to me again, and he kisses me in a way that makes the blood pound in my ears. Thank you, you gorgeous genius, you. Now then, we're going to have to move a ton of military hardware in South Florida, and we need a cover story. Minks, darling, dearest, I wonder if you'd do just one more favor for your country. 58 minutes later, a relaxed, refreshed, headache-free John F. Kennedy comes on TV and does not announce an invasion of Cuba. Now, instead, he announces a naval blockade of Cuba and challenges the Russians to remove the missiles. Yes. As for that one more thing that Jack wants me to do for my country, are you up for a road trip? Uh, Yeah. Hey, I'm in. Let's go. Okay, this is the time of the podcast when we pause for one brief moment to remind you that we are 100% commercial-free and listener-supported. So if you like what we're doing, please go to richlyspun.com and donate whatever you'd like to express your enthusiasm. 
We are but humble pantaloons, dependent on the kindness of strangers like you, so we can do things like this. That said, now more of this. Hello, my name is Kent Spasto. I am Public Affairs Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, currently on assignment here at the Trojan Spirit Network Control Center in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. My job is to assure the security of our country's most secret security assets and to make those assets available to a very select number of individuals when appropriate. The document request you presented from Joseph P. Kennedy III United States Representative of Massachusetts 4th Congressional District has been deemed acceptable by my superiors for access to the media assets you've requested. If you walk this way, please. You've still got some pull. J.K. III is Bobby's grandson. The Kennedys are a loyal bunch. They still remember the difference I made in the 1960 election. Plus, I turned down half a million bucks in 1966 to write a tell-all book about my romance with Jack because it would have been bad for Bobby and Ted. Please, watch your head. We're about to descend 426 feet to the secured sub-basement of this facility where a screening room has been secured. I will now collect all smartphones, tablets, and media devices capable of recording audio and video as per the consent form you signed when you entered. Okay, this is your humble host and assembled company signing off. Okay, it's now four hours and 17 minutes later. We're here in the breakfast room of the local Comfort Inn, ready to describe what we've uh, just seen. Skylar, why don't you provide the cinematic context? Wow. Uh, imagine, if you will, discovering a lost Elvis film, an archetypal expression of his everlasting and eternal mid-career Elvisness captured on film in 1962. I can't believe I just saw The Swingin' Astronaut, which stars Elvis and our own Minx Devlin. I've got to tell you the story. Elvis plays a swingin' jet jockey named Lucky Peters, and Minx essays two roles. The first is Dolly Dallyrimple, a perky, bouncy dancer at the Blast Off A Go-Go Lounge. And the one I really loved is the second role she plays, which is Shivlana, a Russian spy, and she plans to seduce Lucky to get him to fly his XF-719 experimental supersonic aircraft to Cuba. But don't worry, because somehow Lucky and Dolly and Choo Choo the Chimp evade the Russians, and it all ends up, this is amazing, in a rocket to the moon with Lucky singing the Rockin' Rocket Rock. So, Ms. Devlin, I have to ask, did we actually see that, or did I hallucinate the whole thing? No, you saw it. We made it for the United States government as part of Operation Nimrod. Come on, I'll show you where we filmed it. Okay, we're currently on our way to Key West, Florida. Meeks, tell us about Operation Nimrod. Well, Jack and the Joint Chiefs decided to move a ton of jet fighters, NORAD bombers, submarines, destroyers, 
missile launchers into South Florida to make sure the Russians wouldn't make a second move on Cuba. Jack was scared that all this hardware would scare the American public, so the government concocted a cover story that all his hardware was eye candy for the Elvis movie. There it is. Pull in right here. We're here in front of the Casa Marina Key West, a Waldorf Astoria resort. But in November of 1962, this was the site of the Happy Heron Motor Court, where I occupied Bungalow 7 during the filming of The Swingin' Astronaut. It's a nice clear day, and with these high-powered binoculars, you can just barely see Havana. That's why they chose this beach for filming, so the jet fighters and missile launchers could see into Castro's backyard. And if you follow me down half a block to Atlantic Boulevard, this is where the hunka hunka burning love that would be Mr. Elvis Presley's fully customized 46-foot Bluebird Wander Lodge motorhome was parked. And now, let's find a nice quiet place where I can tell you the whole sordid truth. So, how quickly did this wonder work come together? Well, we were shooting the first scenes 18 days after JFK went on television. Colonel Tom Parker got Elvis's usual fee, $1 million in all music rights. What the government spent on filming is still classified, but it was probably another million. To make all this happen in a month, Colonel Parker hired, who else, Herb Zuzman to produce. Herbie and I wrote the script in a weekend. A weekend. It's an Elvis movie. I mean, how tough is it? <laughs> There's the Barbie doll girlfriend, the wacky sidekick, a cute orphan, some cardboard villains, 11 forgettable songs, a dune buggy chase, and a big finish that pays off the title. Done. The Army gave us everything we wanted, including, much to Herbie's outrage, a director. And that director was Lieutenant Colonel Fletcher Buskirk of the United States Army Signal Corps. This was Busker's only venture into commercial feature filmmaking. His other works, as you probably know from his 31-year career, include field stripping an M1C sniper rifle, identification of edible wildlife for Arctic survival, and my personal favorite, how to dress a sucking chest wound in combat. Well, we were shooting the first scenes 18 days after JFK went on television. Colonel Tom Parker got Elvis's usual fee, $1 million, and all music rights. What the government spent on filming is still classified, but it was probably another million. To make all this happen in a month, Colonel Parker hired, who else, Herb Zuzman to produce. Herbie and I wrote the script in a weekend. A, a weekend? It's an Elvis movie. <laughs> I mean, how tough is it? There's the Barbie doll girlfriend, a wacky sidekick, a cute orphan, some cardboard villains, 11 forgettable songs, a dune buggy chase, and a Big finish that pays off the title. Done. The Army gave us everything we wanted, including, much to Herbie's outrage, an actual director. Right. The film was directed by a Lieutenant Colonel Fletcher Buskirk of the United States Army Signal Corps. This was Buskirk's only venture into the commercial filmmaking uh, venue. Other work from his 31-year career includes such films as... Field stripping and M1C sniper rifle, identification of edible wildlife for Arctic survival, 
and uh, my personal favorite, how to dress a sucking chest wound in combat. <laughs> <laughs> the colonel loved Buzz Kirk because he never asked Elvis for more than one take, and who cared because this was a movie no one would ever see. What was it like working with Elvis? So... The moment JFK has finished addressing the American people on television, he kisses me goodbye, and I'm loaded into a Lockheed C-130 Hercules transport plane with Guillermo Hernandez Bauza, who is now my personal bodyguard. It's almost midnight when I settle into my room at the Happy Heron, but right away there's a banging on the door. It's red and sunny. Two members of Elvis's posse. I have been summoned to meet the king. So we walk down the street, and he's standing in the doorway of his motorhome. I am almost knocked over by the wave of sexual heat he radiates. Well, that and his drugstore aftershave. He's wearing a gaudy orange Hawaiian shirt, red swim trunks, and penny loafers with no socks. Now, I'd seen a couple of his early movies and, of course, those wild Ed Sullivan TV appearances, but, well, let's just say, in the flesh, he is even more charismatic, sexy as hell. He says, Ah, Miss Devlin, this is a righteous pair of love bubbles you got there. I take this for a compliment. Elvis then gives me a tour of the hunka hunka burning love, and it is something. Six Lazy Boy Naga Hide Recliners, six color TV sets, very impressive for 1962, purple wall-to-wall -wall shag carpeting, and gold records everywhere. He says, since we're going to fall in love in this picture, maybe we could, you know, kind of start now. He grabs me, leans me back over the wet bar, and gives me a long, lusty French kiss, and then another, and then another. The air is thick. Still, I'm ready to surrender. He's got riveting blue eyes, and they flash like summer lightning. Then he says, hey, little girl, want to go for a bike ride? What the hell? Why not, I guess? He jumps outside and hauls two gold-plated Harley-Davidson duo glides out of the luggage bay, and two minutes later, we're roaring down the beach at 80 miles per hour, laughing our heads off. He has a poor boy delight in showing off his toys. If he's cranked on something, and I'm sure he is, he sure knows how to handle it. Hmm. So now, it's three in the morning. We're back at the hunka hunka burning love, and that bike ride has made me even hotter. I am hepped up and hog wild. He's frying up some peanut butter and banana sandwiches. I'm curious if he knows anything about the movie, like, I don't know, for example, that the whole project is a sham. He says, well, the colonel handles all that business crap. Elvis just does what he says. He gets Elvis a million bucks a picture before we start, Elvis usually plays a race driver, a scuba diver, or some damn thing, <laughs> sings a bunch of songs, and kisses a whole bunch of pretty girls like you. Another long, lingering kiss. I take his hand, lead him to the bedroom of his diesel Versailles, and push him down on the circular bed. My pulse skitters as he pulls me down on top of him and kisses me. This first kiss becomes a second and a third, each with a joyous hunger that kindles an inferno of wanting. 
we strip each other and we're like those crazy motorcycles, zero to 80 in nothing flat. I completely lose myself in the moment. He finally lifts off me and we're both staring up through the moon roof at the wide-eyed little boy faces of his Memphis Mafia pals. Elvis, naked, vaults up, pulls a nickel-plated hand cannon from under the bed and points it at the window. The faces evaporate and we hear the giggling fade in the distance. He says, my boys, they seen all your pictures too. Now, where were we? I grab him and crush my body against his, giving myself joyfully, shocked by my eager response. We make love until dawn and then collapse into a blissful slumber. You and Elvis, that is fantastic. Oh, then I hadn't over yet. Oh, oh, there's more. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Somebody's pounding on the door at 5.30 in the morning. Elvis says, what the hell? Bang, 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 bang. He pulls on a bathrobe. I wrap myself in a black satin sheet. We both peer out the smoked windows. The motorhome is surrounded by men with machine guns. Elvis stares at me, delivering the bad news. He says, you know, the colonel always warned Elvis that this might happen someday. Hell, they got Sinatra's kid, put him in a trunk of a damn car. Those bastards want Elvis, do they? Well, they can forget about it. They're not going to take me alive, God damn it. He pulls the hand cannon from under the bed. You've been watching too many of your own movies, I say with a smile, and I put the rod away. Machine gun bullets rip through the door of the motorhome, and men in fatigues burst in. Thanks for a great night, lover, I say, giving him one more kiss. Before we're finished, one of the Cubans drags me away. Elvis freezes struck dumb by the illogic of what he's watching. He just can't believe they're not after him. The Cubans stuffed me in the back of a moss green 1957 DeSoto Fireflight, bump along for about a mile, and then haul me out and drag me to the end of the dock. There, plopped on the gray buoyancy chamber of an inflatable raft, is my so-called bodyguard, Guillermo Hernandez Bauza, or, as he yells for all of us to hear as he yanks me into the boat, People's Brigadier General Guillermo Hernandez Bauza of the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces, at your service. A triple agent. Dang. Oh, God. No, yeah, yeah. No triple agent. Oh, man. We putt-putt out in the raft about half a mile, and then a colossal Loch Ness monster rages up under us, flipping us sideways and capsizing our tiny craft. I drag the people's general up on one of the raft's inflatable tubes as the metal sea beast reveals itself fully, a mammoth Russian submarine. Inside the submarine, who else but a grinning Fidel Castro, followed by his brother Raul, who grabs me and jabs a pistol into my temple. He says, Ah, minx, my beautiful, if unwilling, Matahari, I know you have been in Kennedy's bed, so tell me, lover, how and when are the Americans coming? They're not, I say. The smile vanishes. He's clearly stunned by this. What do you mean? I mean, you're out of the picture, darling. Those missiles the Russians so generously gave you, they're phonies. Phonies? Impossible. That's not even the worst news, El Maximo. Jack Kennedy knows they're fake. You've been screwed by the Russians and the Americans. 
Even as I speak these words, I know Castro believes me. He screams, Son of a bitch! Khrushchev! That, that Marikon! Raul wants to blow my head off. I can feel his gun hand trembling, but Fidel waves him off. He turns and walks away, and that's the last time I ever see him. The existence of the swinging astronaut was denied by the United States government until it was revealed to the Washington Post pursuant to a filing under the Freedom of Information Act. They knew about it because of a sworn affidavit from 17 servicemen who claimed to have seen it at a remote weather station in Greenland in 1965. Ugh, those lucky servicemen. Well, as a film scholar, I can only say that I hope that all the myriad legal and bureaucratic issues can be worked out with the government so that the swinging astronaut can take its place alongside Kissin' Cousins, Harem Scarum, and Paradise Hawaiian Style and the Elvis Cannon. Now, excuse me, I've got to get back to doing the rock and rock and rock. You loved and were loved by two of the most iconic personalities of the 20th century, JFK and Elvis. I mean, you knew them as no one else did. You've had 50 years to think about what happened. How did these men live in your memory? Well, I loved them both. I loved making love with them. That said, I wasn't really in love with either one of them, but they were both heaps of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Kennedy, oh, a charmer. He had that what-the-hell fatalistic in-on-the-joke charm that came from almost losing his life in World War II. We took a wild ride together, and as far as I'm concerned, we ended up even Stephen. I got him elected president and bailed him out on the Cuban Missile Crisis. He got me acquitted of a murder charge. And then he shared his astonishing world with me, including a night in New York I will never forget. Elvis. Elvis was... Ah, it was so glorious to give myself to pure, blazing lust with a man a million other women would have killed to possess. Ours was a high school summer romance where I knew I could give myself freely because I'd never see him again after the shoot was over. They were both great, memorable love affairs. But they weren't THE love affair. My one great love affair, that was touching the face of God. That was a meeting of souls something wholly unexpected and blissful, something that combined work and play, love and lust, philia and eros. It was something I thought would last a lifetime, and I'm grateful it lasted as long as it did. It still haunts my dreams, and I hope it always will. The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by Arlie Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith, Nancy Linehan-Charles, and Rod Maxwell. 
please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find books and movies that invite you to learn more about the terrifying insanity of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the tragically banal film career of Elvis Presley. And at the website, you can also get your hands on the red-hot memoir of Minx Devlin, The Atomic Bombshell, as told to her granddaughter, Hazel Matthews. It's breathtaking, unbelievable, and absolutely true. Join us next time for Episode 9, a Renoir portrait as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire, Minx in Love, Part 2. This is Minx at her most transcendent and most tragic, as she describes her greatest performance and her greatest love affair. Thank you.